The following is a presentation of the Premier Dance Network. Hi everyone, Kimberly Falker here, the founder and CEO of the Premier Dance Network, the only podcast network dedicated solely to the world of dance. And welcome to Pod to Chat with your host, Barry Corellis. Hello and welcome back. Thanks for coming to chat. I am your host, Barry Corellis, and you are listening to Pod to Chat Talking Dance on the Premier Dance Network. In this bi-weekly podcast, I candidly offer educational conversations and thoughtful analysis on all things dance. With my vast background as a director, choreographer, instructor, and dancer, I am happy to share my 17 plus years of experience with you, whether you're a professional dancer or just listening in for an insider's look into our fascinating art form. So put your earbuds in, grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and let's talk dance. Hello and welcome back. Thanks for coming to chat. I am your host, Barry Krolls, and you are listening to Pa the Chat Talking Dance on the Premier Dance Network. In this bi-weekly podcast, I candidly offer educational conversations and thoughtful analysis on all things dance. With my vast background as a director, choreographer, instructor, and dancer, I'm happy to share my 17 plus years of experience with you, whether you're a professional dancer or just listening in for an insider's look into our fascinating art form. So put your earbuds in, grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and let's talk dance. Hello, 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 everybody. I hope that you are all doing well. (laughs) By the time that you listen to this podcast, you might be really bored at home (laughs) for a couple weeks and need some content to listen to. So don't worry, I got you covered here at Pod of Chats. I'm here to talk to you and take your mind off the world or not. (laughs) But uh, yeah, the world seems like it's going a little bit crazy right now with everything that's happening with this new virus. I have my own personal opinions on things. Um, I don't know if that's like very important for me to share with you. Um, But yeah, I mean, who knows what's reality and what's not, what's hyped, what's not. Um, So I don't know if there's really like a point in me getting into that conversation too deeply, but I'm probably going to anyway, because honestly, I don't even know what I'm going to podcast about yet today. Um, I want to talk about something to do with what's currently happening in the world. So we'll get to that in a minute. Um, I have no notes. This is going to be a free form podcast. So it's going to be an exciting one for all of you. And it might just be awful. So we'll find out later. But yeah, so before I get into uh, discussing our topic for the day, I thought that I would just give you an update on things. Um, as of right now, I'm moving forward with the future because I plan that on doing everything that is currently on my calendar. Um, coming up in the next month, I, can't, I think it's at the beginning of April. Yeah, the beginning of April, I will be heading out to the main stage dance convention and competition. You like that pause? I had to actually look through my notes because I have a lot of things coming up and I want to make sure that I get everything right. Um, So I'll be heading out to, what is the city? My brain has already completely collapsed and it's not working. This this is what happens when I haven't actually podcasted in months because the last podcast was developed uh, back, it was like New Year's Eve or the day before New Year's Eve. So yeah, Sioux City, Sioux City, Iowa. Uh, that's where I will be 
heading uh, April 4th and 5th. I'll be teaching ballet and jumps and turns as well as judging at this competition. So I'm really looking forward to that. This year, uh, as I've stepped away from teaching regularly at smaller schools outside of the city, I've taken on a lot of work um, with different types of organizations. I worked with Dance Teachers United back in January down in Mississippi, and then I'll be doing this. And then I recently was just at Youth America Grand Prix, my first time as a judge and master educator, master teacher, I like educator better, um, at Youth America Grand Prix in Denver. That was very exciting. <laughs> I'm getting sidetracked for my upcoming announcements, but I just want to talk about this for a second. I, um, I started at Youth America Grand Prix back my very first sorry, their very first year that they had the competition. So it was like, what now, 21 years ago, it was 1999. I went to their regionals at the Kirov Academy of Ballet in their little black box theater. I did not pass to the finals. And then the second year I competed again and I made it to the finals and I was behind the scenes offered a, a scholarship to the Royal Winnipeg Ballet. And that was really before um, the competition had such a large uh, wealth of scholarships to offer students. So the school saw me and they reached out to me behind behind closed doors. Um, but yeah, so then I, I've watched what's happening with them for years. And then in 2015, I started choreographing and coaching uh, for students to compete. And I've done everything from regionals to finals and won an outstanding choreographer award. So it was a really nice full circle moment to get to experience the being behind the table and in the front of the studio at Youth America Grand Prix. And I'm really hoping that I get to continue with them over the next uh, couple of years. This was really just like a nice little introduction for me this season. It's the only one that I, I'm on their, their roster to do, but hopefully the next season I'll be doing a lot more. Um, and it was nice to connect with a few people. I There was a, a gentleman from a school in, in the area that walked up to me and told me that he's a podcast listener, and that was exciting to hear. I always love meeting new podcast people. So hi, how you doing? Thanks for saying hi to me. Um, and uh, yeah, it was just very cool. It was a very full circle experience for me. So yeah, I, I'm doing more judging. Uh, my next one coming up is the main stage dance convention and competition in Sioux City, Iowa. Um, beyond that, I am uh, being brought out to a handful of places for the summer. I'm going to try to go through my list in my head and hopefully get all the names right because a lot of these are newer. So um, I will be teaching at the Sitka Fine Arts Camp in Sitka, Alaska from I think it's June 27th until July 12th, something around those dates. Um, I'm really excited to go back to Alaska, but to get to explore a completely different area. Um, I spent a lot of time in Anchorage and that part of the state is very different than Sitka. Sitka is more like the Pacific Northwest. Uh, so it's uh, essentially a rainforest. I think they get something like 200 days of rain a year. Um, and this is more of like a camp, like a summer camp. So I'll be teaching more recreational students, which these days I've mostly been working with pre-professionals and professionals. So it's actually a really great opportunity to work with me if you uh, want to go to an exotic location for the summer and maybe you aren't at a training at a pre-professional level. So I'll be spending two weeks at the Sitka Fine Arts Camp. Then um, I will be heading to, um, let's, 
look this one up and just make sure I get everything right. I, I will be heading to the Academy of International Ballet. Uh, they have two locations in southeastern Pennsylvania, right in the suburbs of Philadelphia. I'll be teaching for a couple of days at their summer program in the middle of July. And then the first week of August, I will be heading to Emerald Ballet Theater in Bellevue, Washington, right across from Seattle. I'm really looking forward to heading back to the Seattle area. I, I haven't. I, I lived there for seven years, and I've only been back there for like a day or two, uh, twice. And the last time I was there was in two thousand. I believe it was two thousand fourteen um, or two thousand. It was like I'm confused because it was New Year's. Um, I got there like New Year's Eve or the day before New Year's Eve, and I, I left, like, the second of... So I think it was 2014, 2015. Um, but, yeah, I haven't been back there in a while. I'm really excited to go out and work with this school. And then I will be heading over to Spokane, Washington uh, to teach at a school out there. And then I'm also currently talking to a school in San Antonio about heading down there in August. I do still have space on my schedule uh, for the summer. It's almost gone, but I, I do want to spend some time at home and uh, enjoy some summer days with my with my husband and friends and family. Um, but if you have interest in bringing me out, please do reach out to me and you can always do that on my social media or you can do it on my website. You can go to www.barrycorlis.com and I'll spell it out at the end of the podcast. So these announcements are taking longer because I'm not just doing announcements, but uh, <laughs> my brain gets blocked and then I can't move on. So I'm just going to move on. Um, what else is going on? I'm also currently in the process of developing a hopefully a, hopefully June program showing for Movement Headquarters. And we're also talking to some facilities about running a three to five day workshop for pre-professional and professional dancers to get to know movement headquarters. Uh, there'll be ballet class, contemporary class, and then we'll teach some uh, some repertoire from our company. So a lot of dancers have been reaching out to audition for movement headquarters, which is been amazing because we just launched in February and before we even launched and since launching, I've had at least 20 dancers reach out to me seeking uh, information about auditioning for the company. So this would be a great, this will be a great opportunity for dancers to get to know our style, our repertoire, and to be seen for potential work in the future. So I will announce all of that on, on my podcast and all of my social media when that is ready. We just haven't solidified any dates or facilities yet for that, but hoping to do in New York City. Um, if, if that's not possible, we'll do it out in the outskirts of New York City. Um, I think that that pretty much covers all my announcements. So let's move on to today's topic, which <laughs> it's taken me almost 10 minutes to get this point. You would think that that's crazy, but I just want to let you guys know what's going on. There's been so much that's been happening since our launch. Actually, let me not even get there yet. I know I keep on, I keep on giving you hope that it's going to happen, but nope, we're not. I haven't, I just realized because our last podcast was pre-recorded, um, I haven't talked about movement headquarters yet and what happened with that. Um, I believe the last time I podcast was in January. So, wow, launching a ballet company in New York City is no joke. Um, honestly, it was probably one of the best career experiences of my life. I learned so much throughout the process of getting movement headquarters started. I, 
Uh, I, I'm really glad, I, like, in my head back when I started to come up with the idea for Movement Headquarters, I really just wanted to, like, get going. I applied for a residency with the CUNY Dance Initiative, which I didn't get. That's a complicated story um, because I podcasted about them a year ago. And I, at the time, I was very disappointed um, that I didn't get it because I thought that it would be, like, a great way for me to be able to... Um, get the company started and save some some funding and also get some publicity. But honestly, I don't think that I was ready to launch the company yet. I think I needed some experience with putting on my own production first so that I, I could get a few kinks out before I actually like went ahead and, and, and developed my company. Um, so I was really glad we did our showing back in August. Our, it was like a pre-launch showing and a fundraising uh, events. And I was really glad that I did that because it was two weeks of rehearsal. I hired fewer dancers. Um, I created, I, I, I either created or staged, um, a certain amount of choreography. It was something like 40, 30 or 40 minutes worth of choreography. Um, I guess it was closer to 30, but yeah. So, um, it gave me like a sense of what the work was going to be. And I, I, when you're starting a company as a director, you don't really have much help from other people. Um, so, I didn't have really any volunteers except for our fundraising manager back then. Um, and I was completely and totally anxious and stressed out about that showing to the point where like by the end of it, I had like horrible anxiety symptoms. Um, it took a couple of weeks for them to actually like dissolve to like go at resolve. I think resolve was the word I'm looking for. Dissolve is when something like you add water and it goes <laughs> resolve. Yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah, it took a few weeks for those things to resolve. And I felt the entire time panicked during those two weeks of rehearsal and like getting marketing out and costuming and preparing choreography and teaching restaging and, um, just getting odds and ends together. Uh, and then I remember, so like I said, there were two weeks before we had our showing in August on the Thursday, like I had been panicked, especially the week prior to the show on that Thursday night, it was like one o'clock, right? The show was, the showing was on a Saturday. I went through my list of things to do and I realized I had gotten practically everything done and I only had like Friday was actually going to be an easy day for me. Um, and at that moment I realized that I had no need to be so crazy stressed, um, because I had mostly accomplished everything. So, um, then we we did the showing went well and then we had our fundraiser but so what i what i learned in the process was that i if i want to do this long term i can't act like i did during the showing so what i did was i gave myself plenty of time to like slowly prepare for the show in February. So I booked the venue. I started to put dancers on contracts. I started to review choreography that was that I need to restage. I started to write down different concepts for choreography that I, I was going to be creating. I also, uh, I also started preparing different marketing things like well ahead so that it wasn't happening during the three weeks that we had rehearsal. And I was lucky that after the showing, I had two more people volunteer. I had a uh, a wonderful, actually an audience member who came up to me and was like, I'd really like to help out. How can I help out? And we met up and talked about what she's good at, like what her strong points are. Um, so she's been helping me with my donor relations, uh, and also with my, uh, budgeting spreadsheets and things like that. Like she's really good with that stuff. Um, and then we also had a volunteer step forward to help us with 
creating the programs, uh, like the paper programs that we hand out at our show. So that took a lot off my plate. So that by the time that we got to our rehearsal period at the end of the end of January, um, I had already developed most of the marketing materials. I had already taken notes and planned out the rehearsal period. And by the time that we were actually rehearsing, I could mostly just focus on rehearsing and tying up odds and ends. And honestly, I was pretty calm throughout the entire process. I had like a couple moments of stress, but um, it, it was so it went so well. It was streamlined. We did have a dancer that that got injured right before the the rehearsal period, but we communicated well and made sure that they were taken care of, and they actually made it through the show. Um, and we had a few dancers that had very, I used only local freelancers, which I was very proud of. A lot of times companies will bring in one or two big names from major companies like American Ballet Theater, New York City Ballet. And they, uh, that's how they get people to come into their shows and, and purchase tickets. But we only use local freelancers because I strongly feel that, uh, creating a new company and creating new work, the only way to sustain it is to use local dancers who aren't already attached to those companies. Because if I stop using, say that I hired like, I don't know, Susie, Susie Slattery and Jimbo uh, Tom Bay, I don't know, two, two dancers from uh, the New York American Ballet Company. <laughs> All of these things are not real. Say that I hired them, to perform with us, the audience will come, their audience will come to see them dance. But if I don't hire them again, chances are most, I won't retain most of them. Most of them are those dancers and that company's audience. They're not our audience. So my goal is really to build a company with local artists that when we finally can put dancers on regular contracts beyond like pickup work, um, that people will already feel invested in these dancers and to see their, their arc of growth over time. And that's how we will, that's one of the ways that we will retain our audience. So I was really proud to use local freelancers, but it was challenging because some of the, these dancers are highly respected and highly sought out in the freelance community here in New York city. Um, and so I had to really work with their schedules. So we had some really tight periods to get people into different pieces um, and I didn't <laughs> typical me. I didn't like just go in calmly and do like a one act show that, or like a two acts. that's like 45 minutes with like an intermission. So it's a little bit over an hour for our first production. <laughs> I've never put on a production in my life, um, on my own, especially, um, for our first production, I staged and choreographed 80 minutes of, cho- of choreography in three weeks <laughs> with 12 dancers who, <laughs> Most of them didn't already know the choreography. Um, I mean, that's an insane amount of choreography to teach to a full-time professional company that's working like 30-hour days, sorry, 30-hour weeks, um, five days a week. Um, so I was really proud of what we did. And beyond that, uh, we had an article in Dance Informa that was uh, featured on the front page. We were not like the front page picture, but uh, we were a cover story for Dance Informa, which was thrilling. Um, and there was just a lot of excitement around what we were doing. I, at the Alvin Ailey City Group Theater, uh, where we held our performances, they, the, the theater seats 275 people. And I, I was constantly questioning whether we should just do one show um, because I wasn't sure if we could fill the theater for two shows enough that it wouldn't feel empty. And um, 
the reason I, cho- I chose to do two shows wasn't because of audience, like to make the audience feel full. I really wanted to give my dancers an opportunity to really dig into the choreography and have like more than one chance to 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 perform what we had been working so hard to do. So in the end, like, yeah, audience was important. But I, I, for me, the reason I chose to do two performances was that. So uh, I did two shows and I was really concerned because one thing I've learned as an administrator is an arts administrator is that people don't buy tickets until the week before a show. So we started selling tickets. I don't know, like a month and a half in advance. We even had like discount codes. And let me tell you, nobody took advantage of these discount codes. And here I was like, we did a giveaway and one person responded and, and for two free tickets. And then we did two different promotions with uh, discount codes. And I think maybe like six, six people that purchased tickets used those discount codes. So when we saw that happening, I was like, nobody's showing up. Because if it were me and somebody put out a discount code, I would be like on it buying that that ticket but let me tell you people buy tickets the week before and a lot buy tickets at the door so we actually ended up filling the theater uh to half capacity or more than half capacity for both shows i think we had like 150 to the first show and 135 to the second show my numbers are in my email and i'm not going to go through that right now because i've already done that twice (laughs) since the beginning of this podcast but um yeah, altogether we had about 200 and what is that? 150 and 135. We had like 200. We pretty much filled the theater once between the two shows. But the way this theater is set up, there's not a bad seat in the house. And it's it, it it's the seating is all like together in one place. So it doesn't feel empty. And the energy was just so great. And um, yeah, I, I didn't panic at all until the day before the show when I actually had a day off and I had to do everything like steaming costumes, had to print out comp tickets. I had to do pretty much like a million tasks. But yeah, it was just such an amazing experience. I'm so glad that I, I've got this company started. The feedback has been great. Um, we got we had a review in the Dance Enthusiast that was very positive. Um, and yeah, I'm just really grateful for everything that's happened so far. Um, and yeah, so a lot of people have been asking what we're planning on doing. And I know I just mentioned like in, in my beginning update, uh, that we have some things in the work, but a lot of people at the show were asking like, what are your future plans for movement headquarters? And I, uh, my answer was like, you know, I'm really just waiting to see like what the response is to what we're doing, because this is our first show and we've really been aggressive with our bring ballet back campaign um to bring ballet back to the forefront of the concert dance scene in new york city and some people have really latched on to it and some people are offended by it and that's great because i want people talking really honestly that was the 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 point of our bring ballet back campaign is to get people talking to see if it actually is something that we think is is true i think it's true and from what i've gotten a lot of people think it's true and the people that didn't really love the idea of the campaign once i had a conversation with them they kind of seemed to understand where i was coming from um and whether they agreed with me or not they at least appreciated our our sentiment um but yeah, so my, my response to anybody who was like well what's next i was like really i need to see what happens uh a how many people show up to the show be what the reaction is to the work that we're doing and uh 
see just to see how much money we make. Um, because I, I really wanted to use it as a gauge to determine if we need to do more audience engagement um, or if we could push forward with our my, my hopes and dreams for the company and the, uh, and uh, the, all the things that I've been talking about for months. Um, and I finally, so we, I, I saw the numbers for ticket sales and that was great. And then I, I got a lot of positive feedback and then the, with the, the review, um, that was all very positive. And, um, they really said that what I'm doing with the company is, is pushing the envelope, uh, of, of what people consider ballet to be. Um, I had, like for instance, we did dance, chance operation in two of the pieces, which was a very Cunningham thing to do. Modern dance. I'm I'm not pretending like it's something new, but in the ballet world, ballet dancers don't tend to do chance operation very frequently, and that's when something changes on stage or something is determined in real time. Um, I was inspired by Val Canaparoli, one of my one of my close friends. He's a fantastic choreographer out in San Francisco, but he's like international choreographer. He <laughs> can you hear the birds squawking? The joys of not having my own studio to to record in. Anyway, back to that. So Val Canaparoli, uh, he created the Lottery, which was based off of a book where um, this like utopian is it utopian or dystopian i think it's utopian uh town they uh seem like the perfect place to live and the perfect community but they have a lottery where they pull a piece of paper out of a i don't know out of a container and then they uh stone the one person that chooses the the piece of paper with a black dot so he did that on stage and I thought that was fascinating. So I decided to try something like that on my own. I actually did two parts with that. Also, I used dancers talking on stage and different things like that. So it was nice to see that they recognized that I was trying to push the envelope of what is expected by a ballet company. Um, and then the, the last thing. So what do I talked about? So <laughs> people showing up, uh, response and the money. We actually, I just found out yesterday um, cause I wanted to take some time before I evaluated the finances of what happened. Um, because I felt so positive afterwards. I didn't want to have like a very quick negative on my mind if we didn't end up in the black. And I'm, I'm really happy to say that we, uh, put on this production and it costs over $20,000 to put it on. And between our fundraising efforts and our ticket sales, um, and, uh, t-shirt sales. I'll talk about that in a second. Um, we actually ended up a little less than a thousand dollars, uh, in the black. So we did not end, um, our first production losing money. We actually gained money, which was just reaffirming in, in the final, like the final affirmation of the idea that people are curious about what we're doing. They're interested in what we're doing and they want us to do what we're doing. So we're moving forward with that. Um, just very briefly, I mentioned t-shirts. If you go on my Instagram, um, I recently posted a picture of our, uh, our t-shirts that we've been selling. They're really cool. If, uh, you are interested in purchasing a t-shirt, you can message me through either our website or you can go to info at movement um, we received a generous donation of, for, for these t-shirts. So the cost is $30 plus $4 shipping. Um, and aside from shipping, because it's a donation or because these t-shirts were donated to us, 
all of the proceeds go directly to movement headquarters. So um, they're really cool shirts. Uh, it even says hashtag bring ballet back on the back. Isn't that witty? <laughs> Proud that I came up with that idea. But um, if you're curious about those, check that out on there. All right. So yeah, that's what's going on with movement headquarters. I, it was just very exciting. I feel like this podcast is just a freeform podcast at this point. So that's what's going on with that. Um, I wanted to talk briefly about what's going on with uh, the coronavirus. And now that we're supposed to be taking your mind off of what's happening here. But at the same time, um, this is very relevant to today. And I know a lot of people are concerned and that this is going to affect a lot of people, uh, both physically, but also um, emotionally and also financially. So um, I've been following this coronavirus outbreak since it started, or at least since they started talking about it on the news. I think that I first remember it being mentioned at the end of December. Um, it might have even been the beginning of January. Um, but I remember the conversation starting and like sitting back and wondering if it would end up like, uh, what was it? Was it SARS? I remember Mexico city kind of panicking at one point. Um, and going like, I wonder if this is going to be like a thing or if it's going to pass like that because they made a big deal. Oh, SARS I think was in China. Um, and then there's something like MERS, not MRSA, but MERS, um, no, it was middle East. Anyway, these things happen constantly. Um, but you always sit back and you wonder, like, is this going to be the one that goes crazy? And it seems like this is the one that's going crazy. And obviously, we don't even know what's happening. I've been trying my best just to, like, let the news wash over me and then to, like, look for the facts as opposed to, like, panicking. Um, living in a place like New York City, it's like you can't really get away from the fact that you're surrounded by millions and millions of people. I, I found it really amusing, honestly, to look at news articles uh, since they first started talking about the possibility of this coming to the United States. And then once it did, um, I've just been seeing... <laughs> constant news articles with pictures of New Yorkers like almost everyone has a picture of New Yorkers on the subway wearing masks and the funny thing is like a lot of those are on the 7 train which is my local train um that I I take every day to get into Manhattan and back out to Queens um but the the funny thing to know like actually being here and seeing those images on our train is that so our our train runs from like Hudson Yards through Times Square, Bryant Park, and Grand Central. That's all that it goes through in Manhattan, and then it comes over to Queens, and it, the our it ends in Flushing, um, which is a larger Chinatown than the Chinatown in Canal Street. So I think it's perhaps one of the largest Chinatowns in the world, Flushing, if you haven't heard of it. So. Um, Asian Asian populations, especially uh, Chinese populations, um, and a lot of the people that live in this Chinatown are immigrants from China. Um, they tend to wear masks when they're not feeling well <laughs> um, or uh, for prevention all the time. I Since I moved to Queens back in October 2017, every single day that I ride the subway, I see people wearing masks. So I just thought it was funny that they were posting images of our train line with people wearing masks as if this was a current situation and that people were freaking out. Um, I, I wish that everybody had this perspective because, um, like I said, this is a common everyday practice, especially on the seven train because of the culture. Um, so that was the first moment 
the, the first thing that I saw that kind of offered me a little bit of relief from the news because what I saw was the, the media trying to uh, project this false reality uh, into people's minds about what was currently happening. Um, so yeah, that was an important thing for me to recognize. But then um, once the first few cases, I think Seattle, Washington, or Kirkland, Washington, which is a suburb of Seattle, um, once the first cases started to come over, then we started to look. And um, actually, last two weeks, how long ago? It was like a week and a half ago now at this point, um, was the first time that I heard uh, an organization expressing concern when I was judging for Youth America Grand Prix that events might be shut down. And I mean, at that moment, I was like, really? But then in a, a couple days later, I, I came home back to New York and um, I saw that San Francisco Ballet was forced to cancel their production of A Midsummer's Night Dream because the uh, the San Francisco War Memorial Opera House had chosen to close the venue um, as a precaution, even when they had no cases in San Francisco and the the government hadn't enforced anything. So, I mean, whether that was a smart precaution or a dangerous precaution, who knows? Like, we aren't going to know until this is over. But that started the conversation of, oh, wow, this is starting to be taken seriously in some places. How serious can it get? Um, then South by Southwest was canceled. Then you started hearing news of like universities starting to shut down. And the, the thing is, most of these are either they're like precautionary. I, I'm pretty sure South by Southwest chose to close down because they wanted to. Uh, I'm pretty sure that, that they, they, they did that because a handful of major organizations pulled out um, universities. Honestly, I don't think they're closing for their student populations. I think they're closing for their own like self-preservation Um because all the universities that are shutting down haven't had one case. And it's like, I, I think they just don't want to be the one school that stayed open that had a handful of cases and somebody dies. And then you have a crying parent on the news pointing their finger at the university. Why didn't you take care of our kids? I think that the only reason that they're, they're shutting all these things down um, is for self-preservation at this point. Um, but again, we won't know if it was the smart thing to do or uh, if it was uh, a waste until, who knows, months from now. Um, it's been really interesting to watch how the dance community reacts to this because um, a few things. First off, the arts are very underfunded in the United States um, and we rely on, when it comes to performances, organizations heavily rely on ticket sales. Um, to pay their dancers' salaries, to cover expenses. Um, I teach at open class studios. We get paid per head. And if people are scared from coming to take class, like we get paid less. Um, I work for a school up in Stanford, Connecticut that is associated with Chelsea Piers. There's a Chelsea Piers in New York, and I think that they expanded. So they're somewhat related to Connecticut. And the school that I teach at up there, they are under the umbrella of Chelsea Piers. I actually go to Chelsea Piers in Connecticut every Saturday to teach. Um, and I have to, I pass like, pools and ice skating rinks and uh, gymnastics gymnasium and a fitness center and batting cages. It's a crazy venue. Um, that The school doesn't get to make the decision if they close. Chelsea Piers gets to make the decision if they close. Um, 
And if they close, I while I am an employee, I'm a part time four hour a week employee. Um, and I have that's the one place where I get sick pay, but I accrue it very slowly because I am uh, such a part time worker. And I've used my sick pay in the past for when I was either sick, or if we had a uh, a holiday that happened to fall on a Saturday or they, then I would use my sick pay so I could get paid for that week. Cause otherwise I don't make that income. Um, so for me, I don't have any benefits. Um, and for dance educators a- across the, the country, most of us are independent contractors unless we are tied into major organizations. Um, and even those major organizations, they only employ a few uh, per, like full-time educators and most of the other ones are probably, they're, they're employees, but they're certain different levels of, of employment. Um, so maybe they're getting certain benefits and maybe they're not offered benefits because part-time employees don't always get access to benefits until you reach like a certain amount. Like for instance, Chelsea Piers, I think you have to work 20 hours a week to uh, take advantage of their health care that they offer their, uh, I think it's, what is it called? It's like a something savings count, like an HSA, um, like pre-tax savings or 401k type stuff. Um, so yeah, it's kind of scary as, as an independent contractor and an educator that works part-time um, to think that if all these companies shut down, um, I'm going to have zero income and I pay $750 a month for my not so great health insurance because I still have to pay a deductible before I even get to use it. Um, and then I have, I mean, I live in New York City. My my rent is, I'm not afraid to put it out there. I pay $2,100 a month to live <laughs> 20 minutes outside of Manhattan, um, pay $750 a month to pay my health insurance. And then uh, my husband and I have all these other expenses that are utilities and whatnot, um, groceries, like subway rides, things like that before we even get to like, oh, we get, we go out to dinner at a nice restaurant maybe once a month if we're lucky. Um, so yeah, it's, it's very scary. And that, like I was just talking to our, we're, we're looking at hiring a new accountant and they're telling us that it's going to cost a certain amount just to file our taxes. And I'm like, I have enough saved. I had enough saved to pay for taxes, but now if we don't have any income, um, coming in, I need that money to pay my bills. So, um, I think as, as, uh, being involved in a community where it's underfunded and it's also extremely community-based and very social, it's, it's been kind of frightening to watch. Um, I'm not so concerned about myself, um, getting sick. I mean, yeah, I am. I think we're all concerned about getting sick and I have asthma. So, um, but it's, I've grown mostly out of it as an adult, but, um, for me, it's just the idea that like, how do we survive if our society starts to shut down? Um, I think that's a a big question for a lot of organizations. I know that there are schools. Um, one of, one of the schools that I've been talking to, um, they want to bring me out for a week for summer intensive teaching, but uh, because of the stock market crashing, uh, because of fears of the coronavirus and then also the oil issue that's happening, um, they have, haven't have had much enrollment for the summer program and everybody's wondering like how long that's going to go on for. So um, I think it's been really interesting to watch um, and it's been kind of scary 
from a level of sustainability more so than health-wise. Um, I mean, I think as a New Yorker, I'm very... Uh, what's the word that I'm looking for? I'm desensitized to... <laughs> to certain things like, cause no matter what, like I have to ride the subway if I want to do anything. Um, I can't walk. I mean, I can walk to Manhattan, but it's going to take like an hour and about an hour to get there. I can't walk to Manhattan every single day for work, um, and avoid the subway. Uh, people are sick on the subway. People are sick. We're walking down the street. A guy was riding a bike the other day and he sneezed without covering his face because he was riding a bike. And, all I could think was like, am I downwind of him or am I upwind of him? Um, <laughs> I would like look at him. Is are his cheeks red? Does he look like he's running a fever? Like it's been weird to in every situation that I'm in to do a very quick scan of every person that is within ten feet of me to recognize if I want to stay stay where I am or if I want to move. But there's only so much that you can do to prevent that. Um, the other thing is like as a as a, a teacher, I'm constantly interacting with people. Um, I am a very hands on teacher. I haven't been touching people as much um, to correct them, um, and. It, it's like I'm making sure that we're wiping down the bars before every class. Like we're taking all the precautions that we can um, to keep things running as close to usual as possible, but things are changing. I took a yoga class yesterday that, and the teacher was like, wow, there were, I think there were 10 of us in the class and it's probably about 30 usually in the class. So um, it's just very fascinating to watch on a, on a large scale, how people are dealing with things. Um, My husband and I haven't started hoarding things we already have enough toilet paper um, to, to take care of things. I One of the most fascinating articles I read was a CNN article, and it was the essentially like the psychology behind toilet paper hoarding. Um, I'm not going to talk about it on here, but you should Google it. Just do CNN toilet paper, um, and it should show up. Uh, but it was talking about like how society reacts to society and how it gives a sense of control. Um like the ability to wipe your ass, <laughs> um, <laughs> how that gives people the sense of control. Fascinating stuff, people. Fascinating stuff. Um, but yeah, so I'm just really curious to see how this all turns out. I'm I'm currently more afraid for the financial impact that this uh, hysteria and paranoia um, is going to have on the arts because the arts are always the first thing to get affected. We are considered a uh, non-essential activity. Um, I mean, I don't think that's true. Take away everybody's television and radio um, and any music that they have access to and see if they think that it is a necessity or not. Um, But it's considered a non-essential item in compared to other things in the world. Um, so we, we go first. And since we are also underfunded, that becomes a challenge. And then all of the people, most of the people that are employed um, are directly affected by it. And we already make less money than a lot of other uh, sectors of, of the business world. So it's just frightening to, to think. Um, to, to cap off this podcast, to finish things off, I want to leave you with just a uh, a fun little story, not a fun, maybe not even fun, but, uh, the best comparison I have to this, I'd like to, to tell you how the dance world typically reacts to things, um, would be discussing a situation that happened at Pacific Northwest Ballet back in, 
what year was it? I think it was 2006, 2007. I think it was 2007. So um, back in 2007, um, Pacific Northwest Ballet was learning Jean-Christophe Melo from uh, Ballet de Monte Carlo over in Europe. He, we were doing his production of Romeo et Juliette. Romeo and Juliet. And um, no company outside of... Sorry, no company in the U.S. had ever done this production before. And Peter Bull, the artistic director, brought it over and was like, this is such a great opportunity. It's going to really be... A, staple of our company and we're so excited to uh, present this um, but the challenge was the, the stagers they didn't have a lot of time to put the piece together um, so we ended up learning like a little bit back in September and then we had three weeks prior to the production in February to learn the piece and this was a different piece than most of the things that the company had done um, it was in a style of contemporary ballet that was very unique to Jean-Christophe Melo. Um, and uh, typically for a full-length ballet, you'd get four to six weeks of rehearsal to put a piece together. Um, but And that would usually be like something in a style that we had done before. And maybe even some dancers had learned it elsewhere or had done it like years in the past if the production hadn't been put on in a handful of years. But this was brand new to everybody in the company. It was outside of our comfort zone style-wise. Um, and we only had three weeks. So, and something interesting, this is documented in a book called When Snowflakes, or Where Snowflakes Dance and Swear. We had a guy who, his name, uh, Stephen Maines, he, Stephen, S-T-E-P-H-E-N Maines, he was a business writer and he had written books on, uh, I believe it was Bill Gates, because um, he was a Seattleite, Microsoft. And um, he loved the ballet and he had burnt out on business writing. So he asked Peter Bowl if he could shadow our company for the year and write a book. It's essentially, it's like 900 pages. It's a long read, but it's essentially like a reality TV show, but done in the form of a book, um, over an entire year, a season with Pacific Northwest Ballet. And this is actually documented in it if you want to read more in depth about it. But so what happened was in the middle of the three weeks that we had to put the production together, uh, the flu hit Seattle, but it hit the ballet really, really, really hard. Um, so, um, I mean, this, this was one of the first productions that I had. Um, I was learning a major role. I was second cast for Mercutio. And then I was first cast in the core, uh, as, uh, was I a Mont? I think I was a Montague. Um, but yeah, so, I was excited and thrilled and I was like, this could be my breakout role. This could change my entire career. Um, and then the flu hit the, the company and it started with like a few people getting really sick and calling out. And then like everybody started getting sick. Um, this was like one of those ones like body aches, like fever, coughing. Some people were puking. Um, <laughs> but we only had three weeks to put the production together. And I think this is like... <laughs> in the middle of the second week that this started to happen. Um, maybe I know it was the beginning of the first week that started to happen. So everybody starts stressing out because people are missing and not learning choreography. And it got to the point where we were pretty concerned that we weren't going to get the production together in time. Um, and Steven wrote in his book that uh, he was sitting in rehearsal and it just felt like a Petri dish because I mean, if you think about it, the dance, the dance community, we like, we are taught to dance through like immense physical pain. Um, we are also 
taught to work through illness. We show up unless we can't show up. Um, I had a dancer when I was creating a piece uh, for Broadway Dance Centers per semester this year, and they reached out to the administration and told them that they weren't going to be able to come in for the day because they were really sick. Um, So I got an email from the administrator that this dancer wouldn't be in my rehearsal for at a three hour rehearsal and we had minimal rehearsals to get the piece together. Um, so I was like, well, I'm gonna have to completely reconfigure things. And I showed up and the first person to greet me at the door was this dancer. And they're like, I just, I, I feel awful, but I didn't want to miss this, but I'm just not going to go back to Broadway dance center after this because I'm just too sick. And I was like, should you really be here? Um, our culture is if you, don't show up, you could be replaced and you could lose that opportunity that really pushes you forward. Um, and it actually was correct for this dancer because I was going to remove them from a section that they would be featured in. Um, and because they were there, I still got to feature them. Um, I hate the reality of that, but in our underfunded arts world where you're only given a certain amount of time to put a piece together, um, you have to make split second decisions in the moment, even if you don't want to make them. Um, so yeah, that was that was that. So, um, we had gone to the point where we were, we were like not even sure the production was going to happen for Romeo and Juliet. And like, I had, I had a night that I didn't sleep. I ended up not getting sick. Um, but I had a night that I didn't sleep at all because of all of the stress and strain. And I called, uh, I called, or I called the assistant for Peter Bowl and I was like, look, I am, I'm so tired. I'm afraid I'm going to get hurt. Can I come in late to rehearsal today? And they were like, we can't force you to do anything, but please do whatever you can to come for the entire day today. Um, so I went in and one of the stagers gave me like these European pills. I have no idea what I took, um, but I was flying high the entire day. Like I, I they, she claimed they were herbal. I have no idea. <laughs> it was like a very Balanchine moment where like there are stories of Balanchine giving dancers pills to like get through performances and they like don't even remember like feeling their body throughout the performance. That was like my day. Um, but what was happening was dancers would learn the choreography, but they wouldn't touch each other. Um, and I mean, when you're partnering somebody, how is that possible? We would do that. Uh, and then, uh, if a dancer was really, really sick, they would say, I'm going to go, go to this room and lay down for an hour and I will be right back. It was so intense. Um, we did end up getting the production together. It was extremely stressful. We ended up having a company meeting the last week of the production, um, where, Peter Bowl was like, I don't understand why the morale of the company is so low when I feel like I've brought this great production for everybody to, to experience. Um, can somebody explain to me why the company morale is so low? And nobody would say anything. And he said, well, I'm going to stand here and wait until it's explained to me. And finally, one of the senior principal dancers, <laughs> this is a, we're not going to put a mature rating on this. So cover your ears, kids, if you can't handle a curse word. Um, this is one of my favorite stories. But she she goes, nobody else is going to tell you why, but what you don't understand is that yes, you've brought this great experience to us, but with the short period of time and with everybody getting sick, instead of us having this amazing experience, what you've ended up with is with this giant clusterfuck. Um, and that, <laughs> the entire company went, <gasps> and I, <laughs> after like it got quiet, I like turned to a friend and I was like, what's a clusterfuck? Um, so kids Google it. If you don't know what it is, it's a great term to use, uh, 
I, I think it's a, a great explanation for many, many things. I would honestly call what's happening with the coronavirus right now a clusterfuck. Um, it's a perfect, perfect word for this. But yeah, so I think that this story is a perfect representation of how the dance world acts. We are probably one of the most social uh, communities in in any area of the world, whether it be schools, business, I think healthcare probably is is one that would probably trump ours. Uh, but we work together, we dance together, we sweat together, we hold hands, we kiss. I think there were four kisses we counted in my my uh, company debut. Um, we hug, we are always interacting with one another. And to have something like the coronavirus out, um, I feel like dancers are less sensitized to it because every day that we are working, every day that we are learning, every day that we are involved in a community, in a dance studio, we are in close quarters, we are breathing heavily, sometimes spit comes out of your mouth, the floors are constantly being cleaned, but they're still dirty, we're constantly touching each other, people are getting sick, people are showing up and having to work together when they're sick. Um, I feel like the dance community is mildly desensitized to illness. Um, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I don't feel as hysterical as it seems like a lot of the world is becoming because of the coronavirus. My hy- my hysteria is only over the fact that I don't know if I'm going to be able to pay my bills if they start to shut things down for weeks and months on end. Um, but I, I think that the dance community is especially resilient in times like this, especially when it comes to contagions, um, because we... We're probably even less susceptible. Obviously, nobody has immunity to this specific virus, but we're we're probably even less susceptible because if you're a professional or pre-professional and you are working very closely, very regularly, you are constantly surrounded by people and uh, germs and whatnot, and you probably develop immunity. For dance educators, we're constantly around kids, uh, teaching kids. I remember the first couple months I started teaching, um, I was sick multiple times, and then I was barely sick for the years after that. So... Um, yeah, I, this podcast has been, it's funny because it was like, I don't know what I'm going to talk about. I really wanted to talk about what's happening in the world right now. Um, but then I realized I hadn't shared what's, what's going on or what happened with movement headquarters. Um, I feel really positive about a lot of things. Um, and I hope that you have some things that you can find in your own life that you feel very positive about. And then if you are concerned, um, just make sure that you're being rational about those concerns. Um, Find true facts. Don't seek out uh, conspiracy theories and things like that. And just wash your hands and stop touching your face. (laughs) Um, I think as dancers, we're really good at training ourselves to delete habits and add habits. Um, so find, treat, treat touching your face and washing your hands like you do correcting a tendu or developé or pirouette, um, adjusting your placement and things like that. And I think that most of us should turn out fine. Okay. So I'm going to end the podcast there. I, I just wish you all (laughs) health and a lack of hysteria. Um, I think, I think that a majority of us are going to get through this fine. Um, and I just hope that we can all, Uh, keep level heads. We can keep on working together to support one another and that uh, we treat all of each other with respect. So with that, I'm going to leave you on this 
first episode, true episode back for Pod to Chat Talking Dance. Thank you guys for listening. I hope that you enjoyed this week's episode of Pod to Chat Talking Dance. If there are any topics you'd like to hear me talk about, please feel free to reach out via my website contact page at www.barrycorlis.com. Again, that's www.barrykerolis.com. I forgot my name there for a second. You can also reach out on there if you'd like to become a sponsor for our podcast or to book master classes in ballet or contemporary technique for choreography or speaking engagements. You can also check out my company, Movement Headquarters Ballet Company, by visiting www.movementhqballet.org. I hope you enjoyed listening in and talking dance with me. If you enjoyed this chat, please feel free to share, rate, and review our podcast on iTunes. Every bit of extra visibility helps keep these podcasts running. And if this didn't fulfill your dance fix, check out my sister podcasts on the Premier Dance Network. New hosts from your favorite dance companies are being added monthly. If you want to connect with me to see where I'm choreographing, teaching what I'm doing in my everyday life, you can follow me on Facebook and Instagram where my name is B. Corollis, or on Twitter at Bariscos. Also be sure to subscribe to my blogs. I have Life of a Freelance Dancer at, at lifeofafreelancedancer.blogspot.com. I wrote on there for five years about working as a freelance artist and an independent contractor. And then I also have Dancing Offstage. You can find that at dancingoffstage.wordpress.com. And I wrote on there about the post-performance careers of professional dancers. I also have a YouTube channel where you can check out my choreography and you can find that by going to youtube.com, going to the search panel and typing in B. Corollas. Thanks for listening in to Pod of Chats. I hope you return two weeks from this Friday to talk dance with me and remember to go out and support your local dance scene.